1982, the uh, number one song in April of 1982 was Joan Jett's, Joan Jett and the says I Love Rock and Roll. Well, what does that have to do with anything? We are, you're, this is a new episode of the Running On Purpose podcast. I've got a guest with me who is soon to be um, my foil, my comrade in arms, my brother, Jeff Webb, who is, um, we're going to be, we'll be, he'll be, hi Jeff, how are you? Hello Steve, how are you? And he'll be coming in um, much more as this episode uh, progresses, but I just want to introduce a new concept for the Running On Purpose podcast. This is going to be called a, called Legends. And what Jeff and I are going to be doing is bringing to you each month, one classic race that we will set up, break down, and then discuss the, um, the relevant, salient, and perhaps controversial aspects that might make it worth your paying attention to and a reason why you might find it to be um, an interesting race. Hopefully we do our jobs well. Um, for anybody that's new to the Running On Purpose podcast, my name is Steve Sisson and I'm your host. I'm the host of all the episodes. Um, a coach, a former uh, coach and a runner, I guess I say former runner. I still run consistently. You ran today as a matter of fact. You're still a runner. Yeah, I did run. I am still a runner. Um, but I, uh, I've been coaching for 25 years and running for 45 years and I'm a fan of the sport. I am deeply entrenched in what it means to be a runner and what it means to take running um, further in life. And many of my episodes of my podcast episodes are dedicated to that. This series is going to be dedicated to hopefully creating new imaginal spaces for each of you, races that you can sink your teeth into, characters you can find inspiring for future training and experiences that you might be able to pull in when you have those dark nights of the soul in your races and in your training, where you can reach down and say, this athlete was able to do this on this given day. And this athlete was able to do that for whatever reason, maybe bringing you courage, bringing you sustenance and helping you be a better runner. That's the goal for this, these episodes, but they're also just ripping good tales, right, Jeff? Yeah, it's the whole idea. We came up with the name Legends, which has a, a double meaning. A legend is a story that is passed along from person to person, but it's also an individual. And we are going to highlight one today that is both. The race itself is legendary. The day was legendary. The race in which the day occurred is legendary. The protagonists are legendary based on how the race went down. And I think that's our criteria going forward. So Jeff is going to be, um, we, we've gone through this, this is our probably third or fourth attempt at getting this episode right. And because it's the first time we've done it, we really wanted to try to get some, some criticism, some critiques and to, to work our own game a little bit. Jeff's new with the podcast game. I've been doing it for a while. Um, I think you're really going to love Jeff and the way that he brings his personality to bear. Um, Jeff's role will be to be able to just be talking with me through this process and um, he'll be figuring out what it means to be a podcaster for himself as we go through this process, I'm sure. And uh, 
It's a different role, man. It's a different way to be than than you're used to, Jeff. But welcome to the tribe of podcasters. Now you are, this is your first official episode. Well, now that so you've welcome. set the stage, you could have just said, "Jeff has no idea what he's doing." Let's get started. <laughs> yeah, but you've been you've learned on the quick, my friend. You've learned on the quick. So, Jeff, give everybody a little bit of an intro to who you are, and um, get us started with this episode, this uh, 1982 Boston Marathon, what's been called the Duel in the Sun between Alberto Salazar and Dick Beardsley. Yeah, for me, I'm 47 years old, been running my whole life. I only ran competitively in high school where I was an average cross country and track runner, but I've been a lifelong lover of the sport and I've continued running in every part of my life. And it's ebbed and flowed. There are times I've trained and been serious and times I've been less serious, but it's always been there. And I got acquainted with Steve two years ago at the Boston Marathon, as a matter of fact, almost exactly two years ago. And I was searching for Intel on the course, just wanting to run the best Boston I could. It was my first Boston Marathon experience. And I found a fantastic podcast where he broke down the course mile by mile and gave a fantastic race plan, which I followed to the T and had probably the best marathon I've ever run. Not by results, not the fastest marathon, but the best run marathon on a day that was in miserable conditions. And I was just so happy, so stoked coming out of that race. It's like, all right, I owe it. I got to get coached by this guy, thank this guy, do something because I just had an amazing experience. And that got me on the bandwagon with Steve. And I've been coached by him now for two years and we've developed a, a great relationship. So when I throw stupid ideas at him, like, Hey, Steve at Boston this year, let's record a podcast about Boston. And he was completely game. And that was our game plan was we would be sitting in Boston a day or two from now getting ready to run the race and we would be breaking down this legendary race. And of course that's no longer happening. So I think the whole concept for me at least took on more relevance and interest. It's like, all right, there's not an actual race happening. Let's go have fun with this thing. And I see it happening across sports right now. People are writing retrospectives and writing about old races. So we're not the only ones thinking along these lines. Although I don't know anyone who's doing exactly what we're trying to do here. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, and even if they were, we, uh, we promise you, we'll bring you color, um, and we'll bring you a point of view that, um, has a mix of, uh, the, what the elites are thinking and how they might be making strategy, but also how this might relate to you, to your training, to your future races. Cause there will be future races. It seems like not likely anytime soon, but there will be. And this is a way for us to also um, keep the flame lit for where we will be soon. Even if it's, if it's not this spring, it's obviously not going to be this spring, may not be this summer, may not even be this fall, but I'm convinced we will be standing on the starting line at the Boston Marathon 2021. And, um, because we can't be there in 2020, this is our gift. And it's the first episode of a series of, of these that we hope we'll, we'll be doing. And um, yeah, so fuck the coronavirus. <laughs> uh, we are going to Boston anyway with this episode. 
How shall we begin, Steve? Well, let's just set it up. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, there's a few things that we want to discuss in this setup. So our basic plan of attack is going to be setting this, setting up the race, giving you some cultural points, giving you some ideas about what was happening in running and running, and then highlight the two major pro- protagonists and um, with some notes on other famous names that were in there. And then we're just going to get into the race itself, break it down. Um, not necessarily mile by mile because the early miles of this race were not particularly exciting. Um, there are some things that we'll pay attention to, but then we'll just get into the, into the duel itself, into the mono a mono action. And, um, and then from there, we'll, we'll basically, um, go through what we're calling an epilogue or just sort of a breakdown of what happened in, you know, looking at a focus on on the careers that, that progressed through these two great athletes and how their later lives sort of came out. And then we'll have a final section where we have some questions, some debate and get into some loose ends and sort of tie it all up in a ball. So we're hoping that's what we end up doing today, but we'll see what happens. Right, Jeff. (laughs) Yeah. And I think we have to acknowledge up front. So Alberto Salazar is someone we're going to talk about. He's one of the protagonists here. He is not without controversy. And we're not going to ignore the controversial aspects of his career, but at the same time, this is not meant to be a reckoning. This is a discussion of an epic day, and we'll get into the aftermath and some of the recent history, um, but it's, it's worth pointing out up front. And I hope that you all will see this race for what it really is, which is um, the end of an era in terms of what was going on with American distance running. And the end of two, the the beginning of the end of two amazing careers and how those careers and their, and their falling apart sort of mimicked and is seen as a through line foreshadowed, if you will, American distance running in general. So there's, there's a lot here in this and that has, that goes way beyond, um, Alberto Salazar, the coach and the current controversies that swarmed around him in 2019. Hey, speaking of cultural points, Steve, 1982, we're getting ready to talk about running history. Do you know the Oscar winning film, The Best Picture of 1982? No earthly idea. I would have been 12 years old, maybe 13, 12 at this time. So no, okay. I have no S- idea. Sports, sports movie. Does that help? Mm, Rocky. Good guess, but wrong. <laughs> Rocky running was 70s. Movie. What? Running movie. Running movie, yes. Chariots of Fire, yes. Chariots of Fire. <laughs> do, 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 do. Don't worry, I'll drop that music in later, and you'll look silly. Like I, I, I don't know. Like what could it be? Vangelis, yeah. Wow, I watched that movie, man. But I, I tried to watch it recently, man. I fell asleep like multiple times. I've tried to watch that movie and have literally fallen asleep somewhere yep. an hour in. Yeah, Michael Bay did not direct that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. Absolutely. Um, what other cultural points? Any others that we need to? I mean, we have uh, Joan Jet. Let's see. The Space Shuttle Columbia had just completed its third flight as this race wow. was kicking off. So wow. I remember that being a big era when the first one launched maybe a year prior to that. And then they just happened back to back. And everyone was watching the launches every single time. And now we had a launch to space last week and I'll bet you had no idea. No idea. Did you know we put men in space last week? No, it seems a bit, 
weird to be thinking that we put men in space at this current juncture of our of, of our world history, but we did. Okay. And there are women in space currently, the three who launched were men and I, I happen to know one of them. So wow. that's why I know I probably wow. wouldn't have known otherwise, but uh, in anyway, 1982, that was a big thing in everyday life. You know what else was a big thing in everyday life? Running. Yes. Running was a huge, huge thing in everyday right life. Something that we, um, in 2020, really can't understand what the running boom was at, at that point in time. I mean, it was, it was the wa- watching the New York City Marathon and the Boston Marathon were huge things. Whether you were live and in person, you wanted to be there to watch it. Whether you were watching it on television, and this was the first era where people started to really pay attention more to what was going on with television, televised running. But thousands and thousands of runners were on the starting line. Boston um, is a little different. They had just recently started to having calls to get into Boston around this time. And so Boston wasn't the largest race, but it was the most prestigious as it still is today. Um, I mean, some people might say Boston has dropped a level or two in prestige, but um, it's one of the Abbott marathon majors and it's one of the biggest marathons in the world and winning it while always sort of requires not the not the fastest time. Um, it certainly takes a wily and experienced character to win this one. And it's got a huge payday. Um, it did not Jeff have any payday in 1982. Right. And paydays were, were just getting going. And this was an inflection point in professional running where a couple years prior to this race was the first professional race. And it was the Jordash race, which was a marathon at the Jersey shore. The top pros did not show up to this thing. I don't think they took it seriously. I think it was thrown together somewhat haphazardly, but there was real money paid out. And I think the winning time was 231 and the guy walked away with 15 grand, which was, which was pretty good. But otherwise people were getting paid from appearance fees and not all of it was legitimate uh, according to the rules at the time with the athletic Congress. And there was discussion going on with um, the road racing crowd. There's a group called the Association of Road Racing Athletes. So they're trying to hammer out how professional compensation should work. But at Boston, it it wasn't a factor because they weren't paying, but people wanted to win Boston. And people were paying attention to Boston as more than just a crazy that you that they had like in the sixties, anybody who was a runner, people just thought they were crazy. Right. But 19 in the late sixties, early seventies, um, the great Bill Bowerman head track and field coach at the University of Oregon and one of the founders of a little business called Blue Ribbon Sports that ended up mushrooming into another business, changing its name and becoming Nike, um, had just gone over to New Zealand to consult with the greatest running coach in the world at the time, the great Arthur Lydiard. And when he got there, he was completely shocked by the number of people in the society who ran the number of whether they were um, workers, uh, dock workers, doctors, lawyers, um, shepherds, housewives, nurses, didn't matter. People were running. A lot of people in New Zealand were running. And he just, a lot of that was because of the prestige of the New Zealand, ath- profession, New Zealand athletes that had, that 
done incredibly well at the 60, 64, 68 Olympics. And so there was this aura around the sport as it being great. And Bill Barron was just taken by it. He brought, came back to little sleepy um, Eugene, Oregon and started his mission of getting more and more people running. But in 1972, something huge happened. Um, perhaps the greatest American distance runner of all time, arguably greatest American distance runner of all time, the great Frank Shorter, won his first Olympic gold medal in Munich. Well, his only Olympic gold medal um, in the, at the 1972 Munich Olympic Games and just set on fire running in America. America was um, a very very much in the need of a hero. And this is the era of Vietnam War and people needed an outlet for stress and seeing an American win brought back some pride to the Amer to, to what it meant to be an American in the American flag. And he was a reluctant, but, um, but a hero to many, many, and really kicked off this running boom, which all through the late seventies just created, got mushroomed. It just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. All to the night had major sponsored races like the Diet Pepsi 10K, the Jordash race, which was trying to, to really forge having um, professional athletic uh, professionals in it. And the New York City Marathon was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so running, people were running all over everywhere all the time. And that sort of sets the stage for um, these two Americans who end up duking it out over the hills running from, well, running from Hopkinton back into the city of Boston um, one Monday afternoon after around noon um, in 1982 on a very, very hot day. Yeah, we should get into those guys. Um, so we've referenced them already. Uh, at least Alberto Salazar by name, and then Dick Beardsley, the other protagonist. We also need to mention Bill Rogers. So you talked about Frank Shorter winning gold in 72 in Munich and silver in 76. But on the heels of Shorter, you had Bill Rogers, and he won the Boston Marathon 78, 79, and 80. He won New York City Marathon three years in a row. He was a 209 marathoner. Guy ran 40. He raced 40 marathons between 1973 <laughs> and 1983. And top people are just not running that many marathons these days, but you know, they were making less money. I'm, I'm assuming he was running for, for paydays. That's why he did so many of them. He Steve, absolutely would you was. confirm that? Oh yeah. He absolutely was running for paydays. He, he was a conscientious objector and did not attend, did not fight in the Vietnam and his conscientious objector, what he, they usually had to get placed into a, a some kind of role in the United States. And he worked as an orderly um, at a hospital in Boston. So he's a Boston native. And, um, he, uh, just started running cause he needed something else to do with his time. And he'd already been a runner in high school, in, in high school and college. He ran, I think he ran at Wellesley. Anyway, he ran and he, he, but he got back into it much more aggressively. And in his first Boston marathon, a second Boston marathon, I believe not his first, but his second, he won it. He won this race. It's some interesting little story around that. He won it when his training partners all knew he was incredibly fit and ready to go. He wore his singlet was a white t-shirt that he had taken a black magic marker on and writ wrote the letters, the acronym greater Boston track club. So G B T C on his shirt with a Sharpie basically stopped at four water stops along the way and walked through the water stop. Because he's like, I need to take my water. So he took his water, um, won the race by something like two or three minutes. I think he ran 209, 210, something like that. It was 
absolutely mind boggling. The world record at the time was in this two o. I think it was um, like Jerome. Jerome. Uh, what's his last name? I can't remember. Anyway, he. I think he had the world record somewhere at that two o eight range, maybe two o eight high, somewhere in there. Jerome Dayton, I think, might have had the world world record at the time, but he. Again, this is Boston earlier when, when Billy won it. And it was just unheard of for a guy to sort of, and he had such lackadaisical slack. We would call him a slacker today, Jeff. Uh-huh. He, um, he didn't have long hair, but he had long hair for the time, blonde. He bounced on his toes. He was such a beautiful and graceful runner. Um, and he was really good with the media. I mean, he didn't, he didn't overshare, right? He wasn't boastful. He was, but he was really easy to talk to. Everybody loved him. And his nickname was Boston Billy that he had won Boston enough times that they, they, as we went into 82, he went in with the number, with the bib number one. Right. And that number, um, though he was not really the most, uh, the one that people were expecting to win on that day, he certainly was the one that everyone knew and everybody knew who he was. And, you know, Bill Rogers, I'm sure at some point we'll get a chance in the legend series to, to highlight one of his races, but, um, just incredibly important for the rise of American distance running and this running boom that we've been talking about. Yeah, because he had been third the year before and Salazar and Beardsley had not run the year before. I'm guessing that's why uh, Rogers was one. Salazar yep. was ranked two, Beardsley three, probably on the basis of their their marathon times. So we should get into those guys and then get into the race itself. The fun part. But uh, Alberto Salazar, how about I, I take Salazar, you take Beardsley. Why don't we go with sure. that? Sure, sounds so good. So Alberto, born in 58. So he was only 23 at the time of this race. He was a University of Oregon guy. So his older brother, who was also a runner, told him, Alberto, you need to go to Oregon. Now, they were Boston guys. That's where he grew up. Uh, But his brother had the foresight or the understanding that that was the mecca uh, for developing runners like him. So with this Boston history, he was a standout high school runner. I think you wouldn't call him a pure talent. He wasn't graceful. He wasn't pretty. But the guy just worked hard from the very beginning. In fact, the Greater Boston Track Club, which Steve has referenced, he showed up for his first workout at age 16, and he's training with elites. He's training with guys who are training for the Boston Marathon, and he's hanging with them. He was They had an A group and a B group, and he was running with the A guys right off the bat. As a high school sophomore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there, there's a funny quote from Dick Beardsley's coach. When he, he was at Greater Boston Track Club, he first laid eyes on Alberto and he's like, what is this kid doing here? Like, give this kid an ice cream cone and, and let's get to work. <laughs> and the guy who brought him's like, no, trust me, this kid's legit. Let's let him run. Let's let him train with us. And the rest is history. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah. And Alberto at the time, um, you know, he, he, by the time he get to 1982 and he's standing on the starting line at the Boston marathon, he has already become the best American distance runner. Um, he has set the American record in the marathon. He'd won the New York city marathon, um, twice in a row, two years. Um, once when he was a collegiate athlete at the, at, at, Oregon. And then again, when he was in his professional, not sure if it was a professional debut, but he, he won Boston again. I mean, New York city marathon again. And so he, and he'd also run the American record in the 10,000 meters, um, or was very close to it. So 
going into this race, Alberto was um, the most formidable American distance runner at the time. He'd run so many races so fast and he truly was a cut above everybody else. In fact, Dick Beardsley going into 82, he was supposed to be the one who was going to win this race until Alberto decided for whatever reasons, which we don't really know that are clear, although I have some ideas that I'll hazard um, in a bit, but he sort of at the last minute decided he wanted to run it. And once he decided the level of respect that Alberto commanded at this point in time, um, everybody just said, roll over Dick Beardsley, you're, um, you've met your match and the best, the current best American distance runner um, is, is the starting line and you better be running for second place. But nobody yeah, in fact, really he, told he thought he was that. the world record holder. Yeah. Alberto thought he was the world record holder. He had set it, so to speak, in New York in 81, but the course ended up short. But I don't think they had determined that yet. So he came in believing he, would, he had run the fastest marathon anyone had ever run. And if you want to wonder about his confidence, here's what he says. Here's what he said going into this race. There's no other runner who especially concerns me. The facts are plain. I'm the fastest man in the race. Yeah. And he trained like one. I mean, he trained like it, right? I mean, the guy trained absolutely like an animal. He was, um, the kind of training that he did, uh, we really can't even imagine it these days. He did all the mileage. So he ran what most people today would consider high mileage. He ran 120, 130, 140 mile weeks. And he hammered out his quality sessions, which were definitely on the side of, you know, much like one mile work, 5k work, 10k work and marathon work. So he was working both all ends of the spectrum. And he, the other thing that he did was he just ran hard all the time, which was kind of par for the course at the time. You know, this idea of long, slow distance was always not a real term. Um, it was always, uh, the elite level, they ran long and hard and Alberto ran fast all the time. And We'll talk about this later as we talk about his post um, Boston, uh, post after this race career, that that training would eventually come to haunt him. But he did the work, Jeff, to put himself in a position to be that level of a runner. And um, it wasn't like he was just an upstart. He already right. was a stud. Yeah. Two last things about Salazar, and then maybe you cover Beardsley. He was a Nike sponsored athlete. He had a $250,000 annual contract, which still haven't done the math on it. It was a, it's a lot of money in today's dollars, 750, a million, something right. like that. It, it was as big as it got in that time. And the other thing is he had an eye on the 84 Olympics and I think a dream of doubling in the 10,000 and the marathon. So what he decided to do was nine days before the 1982 Boston marathon is he set up this exhibition race in Oregon against a guy named Henry Rono. <laughs> and Steve, we cannot go down the Henry Rono no road right now because <laughs> we'll just, to. we'll be, we can't, <laughs> I, I, I forbid us from going down the okay. road, but let's just say this. Rono was an amazing runner. The guy set four world records in a period of 81 days. We'll tell you, tell you more about him later, but Alberto dragged him out to Oregon to challenge him and to really push himself in the 10,000, he wanted to get the American record and have a hard effort before Boston. And he missed the American record, Alberto, by two seconds. 
and he lost by 0.1 seconds to Henry in this race, who was 15 pounds overweight and beat him by a lean. He got beat by a beer belly. <laughs> right. All right. So that's Alberto. Um, you got Beardsley. Yeah. So let's hear it. Dick Beardsley. Um, he ran at South Dakota. He was a good high school runner. He came from Minnesota originally. His father um, was a uh, was a salesman. His mother stayed at home, and you know he eventually. Now these days, Dick Beardsley is remembered as being a farmer, but he wasn't a farmer in his family. And most Americans who get into farming have come from a long line of farmers. But he fell in love with it in high school and did all four 4-H and all that other stuff, and had a dream at some point in time of being a farmer. Um, but he went off to San Diego to sorry South Dakota State University, ran there, and had an okay career. Nothing nothing earth shattering, um, and decided when he finished there that he was going to go be a farmer, take up his, this dream that he'd had. He found a little farm that was, and, um, started working on making it work. He, Dick was never the greatest farmer in the world. Um, but he was enthusiastic and, uh, yeah, we'll hear he, more about that later. But he, what's crazy is to think that, and in his work, he ended up having a training partner that he would run, that he would run with sometimes. Cause you know, once a runner, always a runner, that's how we are. And he would, get, he got out on runs and just started seeing that he had the skills still, and he was feeling strong at it. And he would find time to steal away to get his running in, started doing training, um, at a, at a really high level. And his buddy was like, Dick, you, you should get into some races, jumped into some races, saw he had some talent. And in the 1981, he ran in the inaugural London marathon. Hard to believe that the inaugural first London marathon, which is now probably next to Berlin, the most prestigious marathon in the world. Um, but he ran in it the first one and won the race. Although this is kind of telling about Dick Beardsley and his personality. He didn't really win the race, Jeff. He tied <laughs> and came across the finish line hand right. in hand with his competitor, who I can't remember who it was at the, at the time, but this is an insight to the kind of athlete that Dick Beardsley was, was the two guys were hammering away and they eventually looked over at each other and said, Hey, why not? Let's just finish together. Um, as you'll find out, this is the complete opposite of the kind of runner that Alberto Zalazar was. Um, and so Dick had run really well there and then he ran, um, his, it, that race was in April and he, and it sort of burst him on the scene. He, he had already been a journeyman runner of pretty, pretty well renowned and people knew who he was, but he didn't, he wasn't, he had a new, he had a contract with new balance, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't somebody that Alberto would have been thinking about, um, on the starting line of any race that he was running. Um, but in June of 1980, one, he ran his local marathon called the grandma's marathon, which is still run today, um, in Duluth. And he won it and ran 2937, which was, Two, yeah, 209, sorry, 209, which was not that far off of Alberto's best time and the world record that he was about to set. And I, he would have, it was a really fast time. Um, one and that of the had to be just a time trial effectively, right? Was anyone pushing them in that race? I or? don't think so. You know, this was the era where there were a lot of guys picking up paychecks and trying to pick up paychecks. So there was a lot of guys out there doing work. And, you know, in 1983, um, we had the opportunity to interview one of Jeff's friends who was a professional runner at this era. And he said, 1983, 
was pretty much went the heyday of American distance running. And there were hundreds of athletes running under 220, um, or in, in the 220 range for the marathon. And so there was a lot more bodies out there, but he, effectively he ran his local marathon in a near world record. Um, and he was definitely on the map at that point in time. Um, but it wasn't somebody who Alberto would have looked over at and said, um, I need to be scared of this guy, even though he'd run that fast. But Dick Beardsley was a, a very mild mannered, quiet, incredibly lively and fun and nice, just a fucking nice guy, Jeff, like the nicest guy, everybody that ever meets him. And I've had the wonderful opportunity to meet Dick Beardsley lived in Austin, Texas for a number of years. He, um, he's just, just a kind soul. Um, and an amazing, amazingly kind and wonderful human being. Uh, not many people, uh, were thinking that way about Alberto Salazar in 1982, were they? Yeah, the guy was a ferocious competitor, although in this case, for this race, he's the the hometown favorite, right? He was the crowd favorite by all accounts. Beardsley just wasn't super well known. I think other runners respected and liked Beardsley and probably feared and maybe disliked Salazar. Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, there were a lot of people who did more than dislike they, they couldn't stand him <laughs> because, right. you know, Alberto, he is a quiet guy. Um, but he has a, he, you, like you said, he's ferociously competitive and he has this vision of himself as he can push himself harder. He can do more work and no one is as tough as he is, which when you have that attitude, um, there's a tendency to lack humility or to lack uh, a recognition of the value of others. And so you just continue to pile on that. I'm the best, I'm the brightest, I'm the stud. And it, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in some way, but Alberto's lack of grace when it came to his competitors did not serve him well. And people, um, were, uh, it, it served him well in the sense that people were intimidated by him, but it didn't serve him well in being liked. That's for sure. We ready to talk about the actual race? Yeah, I think we've set it up pretty well. People now know are yeah. basically the three main protagonists as people were thinking of them on the starting line. You have, um, for sure, people were basically thinking Alberto Salazar was going to win this right. one. Beardsley was someone everyone considered um, to be, given his 209.37, to be really um, somebody who might be able to give Alberto a push. And of course- Great, the great Bill Rogers, Billy Rogers, Boston Billy was in the field. So you never knew what could happen there. Um, he was third the year before. So those guys um, were, were definitely the people people were looking at at the starting line, who they were all paying attention to. And so getting to the race, I think Steve mentioned this already. It was a hot day. There was a slight tailwind. Our, our man on the scene who actually ran the race told us about this, about how the tailwind, you just had no braked. You had no, nothing cooling you down and the sun on your back. And it was just hot out there. And 75 degrees, right? <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that what they, yeah. 75, I think by the end. And it started midday, of course, I think it's, it starts a little earlier now at that time it started around noon. Water stations were sparse. It's amazing that an elite race like that, there were 7,500 runners on this race and it sounds like there weren't even official water stops. People were grabbing water from people on the side of the road. Yeah, that's a tradition. That was a Boston tradition for a long, long time that the the support happened on route. And 
you know, at this point in time, athletes were not using fuel in the same ways right. that we use it now. You know, famously, um, Frank Shorter used defizzed Coca-Cola in his 1972 win in his 1976 um, silver medal. Um, he, you know, he, the, these folks were not, they were just beginning to get formulations. Gatorade had just come about. They weren't, it wasn't really in these races. There were a few, um, electrolyte type drinks, but certainly none of the goos or none of the gels or none of those things that we see today. And they didn't have, you know, certainly didn't have elite, elite water stop tables or your own packing your own water bottles or anything of that nature. Right. So you heard the weather. So let's just, let's go to the starting gun. Um, They head out. Now, if you don't know the Boston course, let's run through it with you a little bit. It's a net downhill course. So it starts at 471 feet of elevation. The chart I'm looking at, I can't tell where it ends, but it's probably around 100 feet of elevation. First mile, steep downhill. Next couple miles, also downhill, not quite as steep. It rolls for quite a bit with a slight downhill all the way through 15. And then after 15, which is just past uh, Wellesley College where all the students, all the, the ladies are, are cheering for you. There's a steep downhill. And then you begin the Newton Hills for a four-mile stretch. So over a four-mile stretch, you've got, or five miles, actually, you've got this stair step where you, you run uphill, you know, 0.4, miles uphill, 0.3. And then you level off or go downhill. And that culminates with Heartbreak Hill, which crests at 21 miles. Then you got a couple downhill miles to the, to the finish. Um, it's, I think it's a, a fun, fast course. Of course, it's not as fast as Chicago or anything like that, but the change in terrain, I, I think is interesting. And they came fast out of the gate. So they blasted through mile one and 438 driven by Salazar. Sounds like Salazar w- was forcing the early pace and it didn't take too long within five, six, eight miles. They had a lead pack of the three people we've been talking about so far, Salazar, Beardsley, and Bill Rogers. And then three other guys, Ron Tab, Dean Matthews, Ed Mendoza, all of whom are probably worth a, uh, a discussion and a career review, but we don't have time for it. So <laughs> sorry, guys, we're going to focus on the other three. They didn't win, if you yeah. didn't guess. Um, yeah. And then really the first action is somewhere around mile eight or nine, and two of those three guys I just mentioned, Tab and Matthews, surge, which causes the rest of the group to have to react. And I, I find this part supremely entertaining. I've joked with Steve about it, where evidently Salazar was annoyed that these guys were surging. You know, like, how dare you <laughs> mess with my race plan? Like, you are here to pace me to my desired time and splits, not to make me do work to chase you down. But my view, Steve, is you're, if you're the favorite, you deserve nothing. Nobody <laughs> owes you a damn thing when it comes to race tactics. What do you say about that? Oh, I agree with you 100%, but it's certainly not the way Alberto looked at it. Um, you know, he did view that it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to win. Um, he did. He He's the guy who's like, I just ran 2730 for 10K a couple of days ago. I feel like an, I feel like a million bucks. And you guys um, have, don't have a chance to ho- even hold a candle to me. Um, it just shows the level of um, 
how much of an asshole he was, right? And <laughs> and how much he viewed his own his own skill to be so great and his competitors to be so little. Um, and I think that that's a you know that's something that leads to a very interesting next um, few miles as he begins to recognize that his legs are not having quite the day that he had hoped and his competitors are getting chippy, right? They're getting chippy. They're looking at him, looking over at him and saying, perhaps today is the day I can take the great one down because he certainly, though he doesn't talk about this later in his interviews and things, and he's kind of reticent on this point. I think that hard, all that hard training Um, you know, he was, I think he was second at the world cross country championships in February before that, then he runs an incredibly hard 10,000 meter race. And 10 days later, he jumps on the starting line. There's not anybody today that would, that would have that kind of a race schedule and be like, oh, I got this right. But Alberto didn't view it that way. He viewed himself as being supreme, but I do think at this point in time, some of that attitude might also have been he's starting to feel a little chink in the armor and his legs were not feeling as good as he would have liked. And maybe that first 438 first mile downhill, he was paying a little bit for, um, you know, and one other point that I think is important to make here, Jeff, and, and if I move up, moving too far ahead, let me know. Right. But Alberto's race strategy up to this point as a marathoner has been pretty simple. Run with the pack for the first five to 10 miles, blow the pack up, for the next three to four to five to six miles and then mail it in and skate it in, not mail it in, but, but run it in on his own with no competition for the final 10 miles or eight, six to 10 miles. And, you know, he's won multiple marathons this way. He basically thinks that no one has a chance to run with him. And so, you know, I think that he might at this point in time have been starting to not only feel the chink in the armor from a physical standpoint, but maybe he was just starting to wonder if he might have a bit off a little bit more than he could chew and maybe the race was going to get away from him. But um, I don't know, maybe that's part of what made him say, you know, have such a, such a nasty attitude, but who knows? Yeah. So the guys that surge pay the price, of course, no magic happened. They didn't break away and, and win the race. So the, the two surgers were caught, dropped, and then you're down to the, the top three we talked about. And then, Mendoza. And now we're getting near uh, the Newton Hills that I, I talked about. We're at 16. You, you start the the four climbs over a series of five miles. And we've got a clip that was a, a TV broadcast that I think is pretty interesting. It features Dick Beardsley's coach, uh, who we've mentioned, I think, a little bit, Bill Squires, who sounds like just a cantankerous, interesting, old school, hilarious guy. He I think he had a broadcasting career in him. He, he, you'll hear in a clip in a second. He's pretty damn good. He's very good. And he, you know, Bill Squires is, at the time he was famous. I mean, and well, famous in running circles for sure. Um, some of that was for, as you said, his cantankerous style. Some of it was for his just hard charging training, but he was known to get athletes ready for Boston. And he was Dick Beardsley's coach. So he had definitely schooled, Dick on how to run this race and how to set himself up. And you're going to hear a little bit of that race plan in this clip. So let's, let's give it to the people. Okay, Dan, this is, this is what's happening. Uh, I had told Dick that he had to run heartbreak hill as hard as he could. The upper part, the, the upper part 
going to try to be, you know, cool, but on the down part, he's got to run it as hard as he can. In the snow blizzard two weeks ago, he did, he did seven miles in the blizzard, up and down the hill. So there's a cut of um a little bit of the 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 calm cool and collected you you can hear a little a little excitement in his voice can't you that it's hard for him to take his broadcasting role completely seriously and he definitely had a dog in the fight with this one right and uh yeah he, he, but he knew salazar he had, oh, he had sure. coached salazar at greater boston track club so he was in the perfect position he's got this this student beardsley and he knows exactly what Salazar is capable of. And he knows where the soft spot is. He knows that if Beardsley's got a shot, he's got to hammer those hills. And, and that's what he trained to do. And Salazar you know, revealed later that he knew that Squires was going to have Dickey hammer through the hills because that's what Squires did. So, you know, while there is a little bit of, you know, of a chess match going on in terms of, of how they're playing each other through this through this, it's not like um, you didn't know that one was an aggressive player at a certain point and the other one was going to play more defense, right? Like you knew Dick was going to get after it and Alberto knew it was going to happen and Dick basically obliged and blasts four miles in 19 minutes and 11 seconds had run faster than anybody else had ever run that section through by 90 seconds, a minute and a half faster than anybody had ever done it before. And you and I didn't really, we didn't think anybody else had done it as fast, but we were, we were told by someone who we asked to critique this before said he thought that maybe Ryan Hall had done it in 2004 with that big tailwind. So maybe there was another American that had run that section that fast because Hall yeah, took I'm off Yeah, I'm not there. counting that 203 tailwind <laughs> driven marathon. Right. <laughs> not, not in the same realm as this. Certainly not on a day that was 75 degrees and, you know, you have the two, two amazing athletes. One who's the best American distance runner of the air of the time and the other, an upstart sort of uh, maybe the, the, the David in this David and Goliath story who basically now recognizes he knows there's something going on with Alberto, right? He can feel it and right. he senses this is his chance. This is his time to shine. And he just blasts as planned based on he and Sal, he and Squires race plan. And all Alberto could do was sit, and hold on. And he says later that he was not sure he could hold on, but he's not, he doesn't really give Dick credit even today for what point of breaking Alberto got to because he didn't break. He held on, but Dick was throwing at him everything he could. I mean, 1911 for four right. miles, right on the hilliest miles of the course. Anybody that's run Boston, you know what we're talking about there. Like that is four that's sub 450 per mile. That's yeah, 448. Through the hills, hammering, and a, on a hot, hot day, and just two guys, right? And one, only one doing the work, and the other one sitting on his shoulders. Because basically, from this point on, it is Dick Beardsley's race that he's driving through to the finish to hit the best of his ability. Yeah. And I think actually, four, I said 448, probably 450, close enough. But I'm thinking he's just wide open. There's no cat and mouse surge test. You're just wide open at that kind of pace through that section. And while Beardsley remains in the lead most of the way through this race, and we'll, we'll get to the the final in a second, I think things shift as they crest heartbreak. So Alberto's holding on for dear life 
coming through the those hills at that pace. But as they crest it, now Beardsley's worried. And if you read about his account, now he's taking it mile by mile. He's still in the lead, but he's sweating Alberto. Like he does not want to go to the finish line with Alberto. He's shot every bullet in the gun coming through those hills. And now he's just hanging on for dear life. But Alberto also hurting. I mean, they're running a near rec- world record pace. They, they Neither of them had much left to give. But now, in my mind, Alberto's in control from mile 21 on. Even though he's hurting, they're both suffering. I feel like Alberto's in control at this point. Well, you ser- we know we get a lot more of, you know, the great John Brandt um, wrote the definitive story. This is a lot of what we're getting. We get from John Brandt's duel in the yeah, sun. We should have credited him yeah. up front. We should have. And we, we <laughs> thank did, you, John Brandt. We'll send this to you. Yeah, we did homework you on did great work on our own through it, but, but Brandt does a great job and Dickie is just so willing to share what is going on. And so we get his full thought process of what's going on through here. Um, and we don't get Alberto's. So what we do know is this, as you said, Dick's thrown everything at the guy that he can. He's crested the hill. His coach has told him, you got to fly down that hill. You heard it in that clip. You got to fly down that hill. And Dick is going, I can't feel my legs. (laughs) Now, luckily, one thing that Dick Beardsley did that he attributes as a training modality and a training um, alternative that that no one else was doing at the time, um, that, that he credited to helping him on this descent on this great day, was he would beat his quadriceps with his fists, 1500 pounds, uh, fist strikes per leg. So three thousand legs going bang, 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 hammering his quads every day. And he says, I'm not sure if that actually helped, but he believed it did. At that time, he believed that coming down those hills when his legs were going out from under him and he couldn't feel them, couldn't even feel them, that this was the difference maker. Um, but what all he could do was this, that, that son, as we heard was on their back at their backs. And all he had to do was look to his left and he could see Alberto's shadow just creeping there on his shoulder throughout the whole last four miles of this race, the whole last, you know, he's now wondering when it's going to happen, wondering when, if Alberto is going to move, not knowing what's going on. And all he can do is look at Alberto's shadow to try to figure out what was going on. Now, Alberto, who has revealed very little about what was going on in his mind during this point in time in the race, primarily probably because all he was doing was hanging on for dear life and that he's not the kind of guy that's going to reveal that kind of information. Um, he doesn't make any big moves through here, but as you said, you know, in your view, Alberto's got the race by the tail. In my view, I'm not so sure that both Alberto and Dickie aren't just holding on for dear life and waiting to see what plays out, who was going to play their card first. And as it turns out, Jeff, really what happened is something strange. Yeah. Beersley, first he gets clipped by a truck somewhere late in the race, I think mile 24, which breaks his concentration. This is a TV truck coming by, knocks his shoulder, pisses him off, takes him off balance a little bit. Um, but then more importantly, he, his hamstring tightens up and he's, he's gets a little hitch. And of course, Alberto seasoned professional, ruthless racer, like blood in the water, like it's time. And so that's when Alberto attacks, right? Yeah. And you know, another thing we, we, we need to tell people is this is not the modern era of marathoning where the 
crowds are behind a barricade and these runners have, you know, 50, you know, 50 yards of space between the two, the two curbs to run within. If you, we will link to some audio, some video footage of this and you will be amazed. You got to look at this video footage. Some of it was where we get these clips from, but there are hundreds of thousands. Maybe it's probably a bit of a stretch, but there are thousands of people lining the course and they have, they have so encroached on the, um, the space that really just the athletes can get through. Um, at some points they're single file at a few points, they go shoulder to shoulder and they're almost, the crowds are almost touching the shoulders of the athletes, the motorcycles and the vehicles are having a hard time getting through the crowds. They've encroached so much. People are coming from all over everywhere, hearing about Dick Beardsley, this upstart, throwing haymakers at the greatest marathoner in the world who happens to be from Boston and was the the favorite going in, certainly everyone's favorite. But by the time they get to that 23rd, 24th and 25th mile, you've got this upstart really taking it to it. And, and they say that that day, those late miles, there was many people yelling for Dick Beardsley because Americans love an underdog. We just love an underdog, but Alberto's taken the race by the horns and, and, you know, you can hear it. Um, you can kind of hear in, in, in that video footage, there's a couple of points where you can hear the commentators talk and you can, once Alberto makes that move at 25, when, ha- when Beardsley's hamstrings um, tightens up, they kind of let it go, don't they? They kind of say, well, looks like what we all predicted to happen has happened and this race is over. And if that were the case, Jeff, we probably wouldn't be making this call, you know, this many years later, um, 30 years later on why this race is such a stirring and amazing race. Right. So Alberto makes his move and Steve, you mentioned the motorcycles. Now they're half mile or so from the finish. Alberto's got a phalanx of motorcycles around him, but at mile 25 and a half, give or take, something happens with Beardsley where he steps in a pothole and now he thinks he's really in trouble. But his hamstring loosens up. And I mean, what kind of act of God is that? I mean, have you ever stumbled and gotten better? <laughs> that's, that's what happened to him. I, I have actually. Not this exact thing, right? But there are these weird things that happen. And I think, you know, maybe it's the, God, the running gods who have watched a, fought, a fight like a battle worth battling and they want it to go on and they want to give the guy a chance. Maybe, you know, we, your body is just failing you to such a point at that point in time. There's, there's not a lot of motor skills going on. You don't have the ability to work it. And anybody that's run a marathon, you don't have to run it at 209 pace to know that your body is not your own. But when you have something tight like that, sometimes just some little jog or some little weird thing will happen, which will change it. And if it, holy shit, if it doesn't happen here, Jeff, and with this, it's crazy because one of the things that makes this race so compelling is you see Dick start to make his move back and to start to come up on Alberto and he can't get around the motorcycles. He's, he's trying to dodge Bob and weave through the crowd, through the, I mean, through the, through the, the, the encroaching crowds, the, the vehicles all around him, the motorcycles that's in his way. He's got to take the, the two turns that we all two know turns. about in the Boston <laughs> marathon. Um, and yet he's right there 
right there to the point. And we're going to play you this last clip, which is the final few um, meters of the racing. This is again, Bill Squires, uh, coach of Dick Beardsley, former coach of Alberto and the, these two athletes. Here we are the last few strides, last 200, maybe 200, 150, 200 meters of the race. And this is how close it is. You listen to this call. Alberto Salazar in only his third marathon. But watch Beardsley. Beardsley is making a move. It has come down to this. Beardsley and Salazar. The motorcycle's got to get out of the way. Here comes Beardsley. He's got to make a move on Salazar. Salazar looks behind him. It is neck and neck. One of the closest finish ever. Here comes Beardsley. Beardsley on the left. There's Salazar. Beardsley, can he have enough? Salazar kicking. So there you go. Alberto nips him at the line. Um, and, and when you watch the video footage, you do, it does seem a little bit right there in those last few meters. You know, we've seen now in the last two Boston's, I believe tighter finishes that have kind of maybe, um, made us, made me think when I watched it, Oh, it wasn't as tight as I remembered it, but you have to remember the, these Alberto hadn't been taken anywhere near to a finish line, much less, meters before the finish line. Um, and so, you know, it, you, again, I said that was Dick Beardsley. I mean, I said that was, um, Bill Squires doing the call. It wasn't, it was the regular play-by-play -play guy, but you could hear the two announcers, the female announcer, um, who I think was Kathleen Switzer and the other announcer who was, um, uh, Bill Squires in the background screaming and yelling because they saw what you heard people say, go Dickie, go Dickie. There was such excitement in the way that race finished. And I think that's what caught the attention of so many people. You know, that's what made this race so amazing. Um, and Jeff, they ran 208.52 on that race. That was 34 seconds off the world record. I mean, this is a hot day hot day. And I just, it's still amazing to me that they ran that fast. When you think of where Americans, how many Americans run, have run under 208, 32 over to in the last 30 years, not many, if any. Yeah. I was curious how many other gaps there were like that at Boston, where they got within a minute of the world record. And there were more than I would have guessed. There are four or five times when that's happened, but it's more recently, the gaps are bigger to the world record. And since 2000, the average gap to the world record from the finishing time at Boston is five minutes and 43 seconds. <laughs> from 82 to 2000, that gap was two minutes and 20 seconds. And so I think that's partly a function of just specialization. And you've got these flat courses and people are training just very specifically for these all out times and maybe not trying to run their fast times at Boston. They're not. I agree with you 100%. I think that is something people fail to recognize. There's no value in running fast at Boston anymore. And at the time that Dick and Alberto were doing this, you were looking, you were shooting for a world record every time you went out. And think about this. You got two, two Americans who are within 30 seconds of the world record. When will that ever happen again in the marathon? Right for Americans. Like we've fallen how far away from that kind of performance we are. Now there were some East African runners at this time, Juma Kanga, um, 
you know, they, many of them were not quite in the marathon at this point in time. Um, they had already begun to make major inroads on the, on the track, but not as many inroads in marathoning. They didn't recognize the, the money, but by the time we get to the mid eighties, late eighties, um, the African surge is on and we start to see a significant change in the paces that the times that people run for the marathon. And you start to see this, this spread, as you noted, between where the world record is and Boston. And now nobody expects some people, people to run fast at Boston or at New York, but yet here in 1982, um, 1981 and 1982, Alberto basically nearly breaks the world, breaks the world record at one and then almost breaks the world record at another of the two slow marathons um, and uh, how that world has changed for us now. Right. All right. We should get to the epilogue for these guys and we're going long. We can't do it full justice, but I, I think a really interesting aspect of this race is you would expect coming out of this thing. You've got two Americans duking it out. They run this amazing time. And you would probably think at that time, like we've got a great marathon rivalry going forward. And Salazar is in the middle of the greatest run we've ever seen for men's American distance running in Beardsley is the new guy on the scene, but it didn't play out that way. Uh, although Salazar and how about I take Salazar again, you take Beardsley again. We'll stick with our, uh, our guys. Even though neither one of us did that anyway, but go ahead. <laughs> did what? We both went back and forth on both of them anyway, but that's all good. Oh, right. We'll start yeah, with that's that. That's fine. All right. Yeah. You can't talk about, Sal only I can talk about Salazar. I'm going to put Steve on mute somehow. Um, but hey, so he, hey, he struggled during this race. He went deep. He had to get six, like a six liters of IV or fluids or something. Salazar no did water. after Boston. Yeah. He took no water, two cups of water. I've seen different accounts, but dude was dehydrated at the finish line and went deep. He had also gone deep a couple years earlier at Falmouth, which we didn't get a chance to talk about. And he had overheated and even had his last rights administered. So now there's two races where Salazar has gone all the way to the well, but he finishes out 82 strong. So he gets American records, the one he missed narrowly before Boston. He gets it in June in Oslo, runs a 27-25. He gets an American record in a 5,000 meter, 13-11 in July. He wins Falmouth, Falmouth in August and sets a course record. And then for a good measure, he wins the New York City Marathon in November. So the guy has... A career 82. I'm not sure. Maybe you could throw in an Olympic gold medal in there for uh, to, to make it truly untouchable. But otherwise, I don't know how you beat a year like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, there's only one person that beat it. Um, and Henry Rono in 1978 is what he did. But I mean, he was... It was an incredible, incredible year. And I, I don't think we really can even conceive of that. People specialize now. You know, they don't run world cross country championships, a 10,000 meter, a marathon, more 10,000 meter races, a world record. I mean, an American record of 1311 in the 5k, as you indicated, and then win the New York city marathon after that, like you said, it's like that, that is an, and he was a judicious racer, right? Compared right. to Dick Beardsley, Alberto was picking or Rogers. His, yeah, <laughs> both those two guys. Alberto was picking his shots compared to Dick Beardsley and 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 Bill Rogers running every race that they could that they could make money at. Um, right, but but he was killing himself in training and almost literally killed himself twice 
in racing. And you, you can only do that for so long. And he had his eyes on a major prize, as you mentioned earlier. You know, this is my argument about Alberto at this time. He was all a setup for the 1984 Olympics. All of this was a setup so he could be um, the, the, the Olympic gold medalist in the 1984 LA, LA Olympics um, in, in America, right? On American soil. I don't think he really cared that much about what would happen in the 10,000. I think he had already known and, you know, 1982, he, he's looking around and saying, okay, I'm probably not the best in the world at the 10K. Right. But I do think I'm the best in the world at the marathon. And so he was practicing what it would take. And I think that some of that hubris, right, that expectation and that planning and that maniacal, absolutely single focused um, mindset, both is the thing that made 1982 a year to be remembered and his career after this to be such a disappointment because he fritzed himself, Jeff, there's just no way around it. There's no way that you can't, that you can say that he didn't just, he just burned the candle at both ends and got burnt. Yeah. And you start to see the cracks in 1983. So he does have some big 10 K road races, sets American records twice. He uh, sets or wins the national championship in the 10,000 meter. But he loses his first marathon. He loses his second marathon. He gets fifth in Rotterdam, fifth in Fukuoka. I'm probably saying it wrong, but that was a big time marathon at that time, prestige-wise and, and money-wise. And he got his and he got his ass kicked at the inaugural 1983 World Ch- World at World Championships on the track. It was the first year they did the World Track Championship. So he, I think he was like he barely made it into the final and he was 14th or 15th in the final. He, he was last. Yeah. So like, it's not something anybody would have ever expected from him. So you, there was definitely something going on with him at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And he's coming into 84. He's compromised. He does get to the Olympics. He runs, uh, gets second in the Olympic trials against uh, Pete Fitzinger, but as a disappointing games does not qualify in the 10,000. And that's really it. He, he doesn't have pro results of note after that. And Steve, I think we should defer his to, to the end, the rest of it. So we don't shortchange Beardsley, but obviously um, Salazar has had a coaching career and an association with Nike and all kinds of stuff going on lately. That's worth a little discussion, but just focusing on the running part for the moment, the wheels come off in 84 and he, he never gets them back. He does mount a comeback. He struggles through depression. He gets prescribed Prozac, which helps bring him back and, and get him back on track mentally and, and physically. But effectively, his professional yeah, career sure. ended and in 1984. He just absolutely devastated him, you know. And as you said, we'll talk about his um, coaching career in a little bit. But Dick Beardsley... You know, here is here's here is a guy that no one expected to perform at this level. Goes toe to toe with the best marathoner in the world, and you're expecting amazing things from him. And you know, he just got greedy. 
he just started pushing really hard, racing all the time. He raced grandmas again pretty quickly after this. Um, he just raced every time somebody would give him money to race, he would pick it up. This is what happens when you are um, this close to winning a major marathon is everybody, every small race director wants you at their race and they'll pay for you if they've got the money. And when this is how you make your living, you don't always make the best decisions in terms of the race selection and, or you'll use races to train through. And then you get on that little hamster wheel and it just starts to steamroll into a position where it, where it overcomes everything for you. But what really happened for Dick Beardsley that was so tragic was he had a, a couple years after this, he has a, um, a major, um, accident on his farm where he, his leg gets, pant leg gets caught in a piece of machinery. An that, auger. Um, I looked an it auger, up. Right. It's an auger. Th which basically is used to turn, um, you know, these big, these big pieces of equipment to get them moving and doing what they're supposed to be doing. It catches his pant leg and basically spins him around in circles over and over and over and lifting him up and throwing him on the ground, lifting him up and throwing him on, throwing him on the ground while his little pant leg tools up and basically takes his entire leg and just crushes the whole thing. And he's being thrown to the ground. His head is hitting the ground every single, like over and over and over and over. He basically almost loses consciousness. And luckily the, the auger runs out of gas, stops functioning, stops working. And he's able to extricate himself from the machinery and basically basically dead of the winter and he's crawls himself trying to crawl into his house. His wife finds him, um, with a mangled leg, rushes him to the hospital and he gets his first shot of Demerol and it's over. He says in his memoir and then also in the John Brandt book that once that drug, once opioids got a hook in its hooks in him, it basically took him down a long, dark path. Now he didn't, go down that path right away. Right. He, he, he got on and off and on and off. He tried to go back to being a farmer, but he, they, they prescribed him pills and he took them to the point where he got so addicted to his prescription pills that at one point in time, right before he got busted for, um, forging prescriptions and, you know, basically drug running for himself. He, um, he was taking up to 90 pills in a day. That's just absolutely mind boggling that that could be happening. Um, when he so, got busted, the, the DE agents, they didn't believe him. They thought he was a dealer. Like, You're not taking 90 pills a day because they knew how many <laughs> pills he was getting from prescriptions. He's like, no, nah, really, I am. And he was I think, actually happy to just come clean and tell, tell people what he was doing and get help. Yeah. It was many years that he went through that. I think it was four or five years of, of, of that, that fall. And then, you know, he, he didn't have to do jail time, but he, but he was required to, um, you know, be under house arrest, do, do community service things and, um, got clean and now he is clean and he's spends much of his time discussing, um, what it means to be in recovery, what it means to, to stay off of drugs and, and, and is a, um, vocal outspoken opponent of, of the way that we prescribe opioids and the kind of opioid, um, huge problem that we have in America today. And, you know, he's a, he's, he's an incredibly fluent and emote and, and passionate publicer speaks to high school kids and at races all around. And, um, he's doing the good work now, but you know, we always wonder 
what could have been if that accident hadn't happened? Would he have, um, would he have been able to keep running or was he going to run himself in the ground and keep chasing those paychecks? But either way, these two guys who we look at at this, on this day in April, 1982, they were on the top of the world from marathoning. And within two years, neither one of them is heard of from again to the point where their careers are completely over as competitive athletes. It's completely shocking. I think that's part of what makes this tale a little bit, um, why we still tell the story, right? Is it's as much of what happened in the race itself. And then all of this drama and this sort of tragedy that occurs afterwards and how that sort of sparks our attention and, and makes us think. Um, and you know, Dick has a, he, he, there's a, there's a wonderful post addiction story that he's able to tell. And Alberto has his post, um, you know, post career tale to tell of resurgence in the fact that he begins, um, the Oregon project coaches, Galen Rupp has two athletes go one, two at the 2012, um, Olympics in London. And, um, but just this year, Alberto, um, is called, is, is basically, um, banned by the world anti-doping association and WADA and USADA called to the carpet and basically told that his coaching career is effectively finished. And subsequent to that, he is, um, then vilified and, um, lots of his, uh, poor, the way that he ran his shop and the way that he handled athletes um, has been revealed to be um, unsavory for sure, if not borderline um, criminal. But, you know, it's so interesting. You have both return and um, both come back and have a, a, a great second story. But Alberto's um, ends very differently than, than Dick's does. Yeah, in some ways, I think this story is still going on. If you just run the thread from that day and through Alberto's career and through his subsequent career as a coach and what he learned from his own experiences and how he tried to form Rupp based on his own learnings, I, I think this is all still unfolding. His work as a coach, we're, we're still seeing the, the fruits of it with Galen. And I've really come round and round on Alberto in, in so many ways, especially as we've gotten deeper into this story. And I think anytime you have a super team, and we've seen this in, in a couple different sports, certainly in cycling, which has bigger budgets and bigger teams and organizations. But when you have a, a super team with relative to their competitors, unlimited technical, medical, scientific resources, and you couple that with hyper competitive people who are looking for every edge Inevitably, you're, you're going to run into the problems that Alberto ran into. It was fascinating to me. I mean, first of all, he treated people like dirt and that's going to cause trouble. That's going to come around on you eventually. And it has on him. But it, it's amazing to me. He gets taken down. He gets suspended for four years. But if you read USADA and the United States Anti-Doping Agency and what they have to say about this whole affair in the same document where they're indicting him, they're basically saying, oh, well, he doesn't seem to have been motivated by any bad intention to commit the violations. They actually said that. That's a, a quote from them. It's like, all right, is he a cheat or not? And the penalty says he's a cheat. 
and the people he worked with, some of them say he's a cheat and many of them say he's a jerk. But I don't know, Steve, is there another side to this? You know, I, I have been accused of being a, a Salazar apologist. And let me just say this. There is no resurgence of American distance running without the hard work and the dedication and the single-minded focus that Alberto brings to the table. And that is something we all need to recognize. And, and I think that it's so easy to paint our, uh, the people who make these big, who, the people who have these amazing performances and do these amazing things after, um, they've, they've fallen, um, and to paint them badly with, with the choices that they've made. Um, it's another thing to look at it and say, what really happened here? And what happened here, in my opinion, is somebody didn't know how to get the bit out of his mouth. And all he could do was keep driving and driving and driving and driving to the point that he couldn't see clearly. Should he be punished for that? Absolutely. But they really didn't get him on anything. He actually now is being more vilified for what people perceived as having been done. Um, people have still not come forward to state explicitly and emphatically that he and his athletes were on performance enhancing drugs. Um, he basically broke a few rules and um, it's certainly nothing in comparison to what we have seen in the systematic doping that's going on in Kenya and in Ethiopia. And so, you know, to me in a lot of ways, I say he was doing everything he could possibly do to try to improve his athletes, which then improved all athletes in the United States and have, has us in a position as we saw in this latest Olympic trials, where we have an athlete, we have athletes performing at the marathon better than we've seen since 1982, 1983. It is Alberto Salazar and Nike, plain and simple, who create that opportunity. Um, does that excuse his boorish, poor behavior? Does it excuse the way he's treated Mary Kane and others? I don't think so. But I do think that you can't just say he's a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad person. Um, I think he did all he could do to try to be the best he could be and to get his athletes to be the best that he could be. And he crossed a few lines. Um, and I think the biggest issue I have, Jeff, is there's been no reckoning. There's been no commitment by Alberto to say what he has actually done. There is no humility. There's no recognition of um, even that he did anything wrong. And the way that he has chosen to stand in this regard and keep silence um, speaks volumes. And I think it's another significant misplay as he's misplayed so many hands that he's had over his career. And while there's a hope to me that in some way, shape or form, we could see a resurgence, some kind of comeback for Alberto still today, it will never happen until he comes clean, apologizes and, and looks his critics in the eye and is, has a full reckoning for what it is he's done. Yeah. He's such a private guy. It's not clear that he's got it in him. But if you look at A-Rod, if you look at 
Lance Armstrong. A-Rod's been more successful with Lance Armstrong, I think, in rehabilitating his image. At least that's what Armstrong says. I think he's confounded. Like, why does everyone love A-Rod? What, what about me? But even he, I think, is, is making a comeback. And I, I mean, heck, I, I was a in, on the Armstrong example. I was a fan of his and I didn't want to believe it for a long time. And finally, all the, the cars were on the table and I was pissed at the guy. And yet I'm still kind of interested in what he has to say. Um, do I respect him the same way I used to? No. Do I think he's got some value to, to add to this world? Yeah. Like give, give the guy a shot to, you know, have a new beginning, have a new life. And maybe Alberta will have that shot himself, but he's got to put himself out there in order to take it. You know, I, the other reason, you know, I've spoken of this before, but I think that Alberto's faith comes into this equation. Um, he's a, has a very strong Catholic faith and into the point, and it's interesting in the Brandt book, he talks about some pretty mystical things that happen with Alberto after, um, he, his career ends and he sort of starts looking into, um, some miracles and some other things. And he, he's definitely in his mind sort of trying to come to grips with meaning and where his life sits and how he can, how he can make, um, a next phase of his life. And his faith becomes incredibly important to him. And I've always argued this from the very, from the very beginning when everybody just vilified him and Nike at every corner. I know that Alberto's that he believes that he's doing it by the rules. Now it could be that he knows that that's true and he's just, he's just lying through his teeth. In which case, if that's true and does come out, I'll be the first one to stand there and say, shame on you. Right. But I do think that if it's not that way and it's his, his inability, he, I think he's got a moral compass. And I think that that moral compass um, is not everybody else's and that, and that he has the ability to compartmentalize in some kind of way to allow what he's done to be okay. The way he treated the women on his team, the way that he stayed focused on results only and, and limited, um, you know, but Galen Rupp has nothing bad to say about Alberto Salazar. Jordan has say has nothing bad to say about Alberto Salazar. And honestly, you know, now they were his star athletes. So of course, why would they? But it's not like he was a complete and utter asshole to everybody. It's just, he was focused on doing what he could to get those to be the best that they could. And when they couldn't, they kind of got short shrift and they kind of got pushed to the side. We see that in all areas of our world where somebody who doesn't perform at this level, they expected to be a world champion is what he was expecting. When you don't, you may not get paid attention to. And is that's what's happening here? Or is it an ongoing systematic, absolute focus on breaking the rules so you can win at any costs? I don't buy that, but, but I do think it doesn't really matter because Alberto, if he doesn't come clean, and doesn't have some form of reckoning. It won't make any difference. He has to tell his story. And if he doesn't, why should we fucking care? I don't think we should. Yeah. I think you might be giving him a little too much credit, just like Usada did. You know, when you think about micro dosing and using therapeutic, therapeutic use exemptions, I mean, come on, does every damn runner have asthma and a thyroid problem? And when you just see the abuse, the clear abuse of those kind of things, 
it just makes a mockery of the rules and they're not alone. Other sports, other athletes, other countries are doing the same thing, but it would be nice to live in a world where you could just have pure clean competition. I know we're never going to get it, but I don't give them quite the slack that you do on this one. Yeah. And I think that's why Alberto was also keeping silent because I don't think he can believe he thinks clean and he, and I think in a lot of ways he is as clean as anybody who has an Olympic gold medalists on his roster. Right. I think, but did he step over the lines? Wada and Usada thought so. Um, do I think he stood over, stepped over the line? Certainly in the way that he treated his athletes, 100% for sure. Otherwise I'm like, I don't really buy all this drug, this, this vid drug vigilance. Yes, I do think we need to have testing, but there's always a way to get around it. There's always a new test that Nike, what they're doing at Nike, they've got laboratories that are so far ahead of the drugs in scheduling. There's no way, there's no way these testing agencies could ever catch up to the new drugs that are being created because there's so much money in the sport that the guys who get caught are the dumb ones. Right. So I think Alberto thought he was cleaner than everybody else and that he's in shock, but there's nothing else he can say about it. I, you know, I don't have any proof of that. That's just my view. And again, I'd want to reiterate Alberto, the man has made some very, very, very poor choices. Alberto, the coach did what he thought he could needed to do and should do within the letter of the law as it was as it was placed there to get his athletes, the results that they needed because he was doing it for his athletes for his sponsor and for his country. Seriously. I believe he believes that. And, and if he doesn't, then I'll step all the way back off of this and say, I'm going to shut up. And I was wrong 100%, but that's kind of where I sit on this. And that's why I have a sense of looking at him and saying he's a fall, he's fallen, but maybe there's a chance for him. But again, it won't ever happen until he, until he finds some way to come clean. And I respect everybody else's views that don't see it that way. I do respect why people want to write him off, but when they write him off, they need to realize that they need to do that to everybody equally and that we need to then crucify all our heroes who fail and crucify them all in a way that um, they deserve. And that doesn't happen. I mean, we bail out banks. We bail out, you know what I mean? A guy, I, I, it, if you go down this argument of moral culpability, it's a slippery slope. And I just think, um, I don't think Alberto is the horrible, terrible, no good, very bad person that everybody's painting him out to be. But I do think he's, 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 he's definitely made some very, very poor choices and he needs to pay for them and he is paying for them. But I look at what, what Lance Armstrong did and the way he did it, significantly more egregious. Significantly more egregious. He was absolutely flaunting the rules with impunity and then also lying about it. Yeah, don't, don't get me started right? on him. So, <laughs> so, I, so I'm yes. just saying if, if a guy like- Every, What we know Armstrong did is definitely worse. What he's even admitted to is worse than what Salazar is accused right. of. And, 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 but the question is, what did Salazar really do? We don't know. And, and right. maybe we will, maybe we won't. And, um, I'll wait to, to completely. And, and here's another thing. We're talking about the 1982 Boston marathon where two guys went head to head, throwing down and ran an epic race. And I think you can still watch this race and say, this is such a compelling story. partly because we're talking yep. about this later part of Alberto's life. 
I'm glad you you brought it there because I wanted to uh, bring it back to the race and close things out with a few final questions for you. I don't think I've sprung these questions on you yet, but question number one, career podium for these two runners. How would you rate their Boston result for their career podium? Top step, gold medal performance for them over their whole career, silver, bronze, something else. For Dick Beardsley, it's absolutely gold medal performance. You know, um, and for Alberto, I think it's not even on a podium. Um, I think his results at New York City, um, his American records that he ran, um, are uh, are are maybe not better. You know, the American records at the five k and the ten k. Um, I think that, and he won this race. So how do you say that? How do you how do you put Alberto on a podium and and Dick off? Because you said for their own podiums, right? Yeah, their own podiums. Their career podium. I probably podium. put it, it just below the just just off the podium for Alberto, and it is definitely gold medal position for Dick Beardsley. That's okay. how I view it. What do you think? I'm pretty close to you. I was hoping we'd disagree a little bit, but Alberto, I was thinking maybe maybe bronze. Like it, it's up there, just based on how hard he had to dig. And also there's just this tragic aspect to it. And I guess if you look at it that way, you could say it should be nowhere near the podium because you could argue it ended his career. He doesn't even want to think about this damn race. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the New York, his New York city marathon wins, all three of them were amazing in their own rights. You know, he won as a collegiate, he won in a world record, and then he won in an absolute dogfight. The same year he raced Dick Beardsley, he won over Rodolfo, Rodolfo Gomez at the 1982 New York City Marathon in an absolute dogfight that was unbelievable how close that race. it That race did not come to the last, you know, there wasn't two seconds separating them, but they threw haymakers at each other back and forth much more. I mean, Alberto just rode on Dickey in this race and he did not with Gomez. They went, they went throwing haymakers at each other over and over and over again in that race. And I still think all three of those marathons are ranked above this marathon. And that's to say nothing about being second at the world cross country championships, um, you know, and, and the other, amazing things on his, on his career podium. All right. Last question. If you could rewind the clock and run this race over 10 times, the same, the 82 Boston marathon, just do it again and again and again. Would the outcome change? Would Beardsley win any of them if you ran it 10 times? God, such a great question. I'd have to say yes. I mean, I don't think he would win five, but I think he'd win two. Maybe. I think one of the times he could pull off a win, maybe two times he could pull off a win. I think there's things that Dick thinks he could have done now that he knows what he, no, the question is, do they know something new or do they just run it? Right. Um, I think the amount of deference that everyone gave Alberto allowed him to win this race. And I think that maybe Dick also could have run a little slower through the Newton Hills, saved a little bit more for the end and maybe pulled something out. What if he doesn't get, um, a hamstring tightening up? Right. Um, it's, it's a lot harder to play it that way. Right. Like Alberto and Alberto could have, you know, if he'd been more aggressive at certain points in the race, he might've cooked himself. We've seen that before many times where people in, in the Boston marathon get way above their ski and out above over their skis and fall apart on this race. It's an easy race to do that on. And if he hadn't felt so bad and Dick hadn't had such a good day, would he have pushed harder and then Dick could have caught him later on? So I do, I think there's chances that usually could win this race, maybe two or three times out of 10 but Alberto's going to win most of the time because that's what he did. And I still think Dick just found himself 
like a rube in the position of unexpected opportunity. And even though going into it, he believed he could win it. I wonder if he really did, you know, and, and, um, hard to tell with the way they tell this story. Um, would be a great question to ask both of them. Um, I bet Alberto would be like, I'd win it every time. And I bet Dick would say <laughs> I'd win it five times, but Dick is so humble that he probably would maybe put himself at two or three. But I think there were chances that Dick had to win this yeah. race that could have won this race if they played out different. And I do think there's chances that there's ways that Alberto could lose the race. And I think that might be in play too, given what kind of day Dick Beardsley had on that day and the form he was in. I mean, he was an incredible fitness and incredible form. Um, you know, you pull races in and out and you say, okay, there's no, there's no 10 K 10 days before this race. I, I don't know that Dick's got a shot. You know what I mean? And I think Alberto breaks a world record by a minute and feels much, much better. That race did something to him. He was not the same for having run 2730. Really? Somebody's not ready to run 10 days after a 27, 30, 10K. Yeah, no, they're not. And that's, and that's why you just made my argument for me. That's why I don't think Beardsley gets him in 10. I think he needs more. Mm. <laughs> he needs 20, 30, 40. He needs Salazar to have some bad luck because Salazar comes in tired, slightly compromised, didn't drink water, and Beardsley comes in firing on all cylinders, giving everything he had had the best day. Everything went right for Beardsley, except that little cramp, which he recovered from. And it wasn't enough against a slightly compromised Salazar. So I, I don't think it gets any better than that for Beardsley. Yeah, I think you make a really compelling argument. Um, but I, I do, I guess maybe I just love the underdog story so much, you know, I just do. And, uh, but I see your point and you make a really, really compelling one. Hey, no matter how many times you watch Rocky, he always loses that fight. You got to get to Rocky two or three. That's so true. But Beardsley never got yep. there. He, he busted himself That's so up. true. That's so true. Yeah. All right. We're going long. We we should, uh, I don't know. We should end it eventually. What do you yeah. think? We, you know, the, we, we did. <laughs> I'm having fun, but I don't miss, know how long we did uh, miss, people can go. We did miss one topic that we can just save that for... Um, maybe for another day, just, we didn't really get a chance to talk about American distance running and American marathoning, but, um, you know, I do think we've gone long and I think we've done good. We've done a good service to this, um, to this episode and I'm hoping people enjoyed it. I'm hoping people felt like, uh, even though we might've taken 90 minutes out of your, out of your day or two days or three days, as long as it takes for you to consume this, that we brought to life, um, a classic legendary race with two legends um, who went toe to toe on a hot day in April in 1982. Um, we had a lot of fun doing this. We're planning on doing it some more. This is the first episode. Um, we do have a teaser for our second episode. We're going to tackle the women's first women's Olympic marathon, 1984 and talk a little bit about women's marathoning, women's distance running going into that how American distance running, what happened after that, um, the incredible talent pool that was standing on the starting line and this amazing story of perhaps the greatest single performance by an American athlete of all time as a marathoner and even as, a, as, a, as an American distance runner in Joan Benoit Samuelson's win of the 1984 Olympic Games. So um, we'll tease that one up for you. Two-time Boston winner, the, by the way, Joan yeah, Benoit. And set a world record at Boston in devastating fashion. Um, so 
if you like this episode, let us know. You know, we're trying something different um, and we had a lot of fun. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Um, if you've got any feedback, um, you can send it to me, sisson at telosrunning.com. Um, and uh, you can find this podcast and all of my other podcasts um, wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks for listening. Again, if you, if you have interest, um, just let us know how we did. Give us a, give us a shout out on, on whatever platform you use. Uh, give us stars. Those are super easy to give and just let us know how we're doing. If you like this episode and if you want more, what do you got, Jeff? Yeah. And if you have ideas too, if you think, if you have some legendary races that you think we should talk about, let us know. There's a couple I'm pulling for. I want to do a sprinter. I got one in mind. Uh, I know this is a distance thing, Steve, but maybe we could get some distance people interested in the oh, sprint I know story. We can. And, I got and I know I can, cause I, you could talk about the pole vault, the, 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 the high jump, the, uh, it, 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 you can talk about nearly anything and I'll get excited about it. So I love this sport and it, it, it isn't just the distance running, but we, we know most of our listeners are distance runners. So we'll sort of stay on that tip, but we're definitely going to bring you shorter distance stuff in classic races, classic runners, legendaries, um, legendary performances. So thanks for listening and, um, we'll catch you the next time. Tell it